you're chillin' and uh, you will hear about the eliminating of the negative and the accent on a positive. And gather round me, chillin', if you're willing, and sit tight while I start reviewing. Test, the test. Is this thing on? Oh, yes, it is. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista, and now here's your host, Serena Bird and Friends. Hello, Frugalistas, and welcome. Today, I have a very special guest, someone who I met in Canberra through networking circles, through Business at Breakfast. But she's not going to be in Canberra much longer, and that's a story we're about to share. Joanne Holbrook is author of Your Passport to Parenting. She's a former dancer, and she met her husband, a US Army officer, while living in London. They have two children, and they have been on eight deployments soon to be nine, and they have lived in five countries. So she has some amazing perspectives on parenting in different cultures and countries to share. Welcome, Joanne. Oh, thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm so excited to have you. Joanne, I'll get this out in the open straight up. I don't usually like parenting books, and I know you've written a parenting book, so maybe that sounds a fairly strange thing to say, but I guess... As a very imperfect mother, including someone who single parented for a while, when things were very, very imperfect, I guess I feel worried about being judged. I was really reassured when I read your book, and you addressed that straight out, the fact that you are not a parenting expert telling people that you're a perfect parent doing it in the perfect way. Absolutely. You know, I read parenting books too, and I also don't like them. And I always got to chapter two and felt like a failure and threw the Mm. book away. And I don't do the 10 best steps to parenting. I am not going to follow them. (laughs) But this book sort of, I always call myself the accidental author. I just started watching how other people did it. And it was through my own failures that I needed to watch other people parent. And I started just collecting these stories and asking amazing people their advice and that's really how the book came to be. It wasn't this, this lifelong dream. It just, it just happened with these amazing men and women and everyone else that had this great advice that I, I couldn't keep to myself. Mm. And I wrote this book from an imperfect parent's point of view, not from a perfect parent by any means. Well, the diversity of views that you share in there is certainly representative of that. And I know I have learned a lot. There were so many aha moments for me, and areas where I felt more reassured about my own parenting, also areas where they were like, that's a really good idea. That's something I'm going to do. Yeah. And there's, th- there's things that you're going to know and go, yeah, I know that. And there's things that you're going to be like, oh, well, no, that won't work for me. But that's interesting that that would work for somebody else. And I'm a parent supporter. If I can help parents just feel confident in what they're already doing, then that's really worth the whole point. We don't have to be perfect. Perfect, boring. Nobody wants to have that pressure. (laughs) I don't. Well, thank goodness for that. (laughs) Let's start at the beginning. In your book, you share a few things about your upbringing in South Africa. Could you share some of the key things you learnt growing up? Yeah, well, you know, I was brought up in the apartheid time as a privileged white person, and I wasn't allowed to speak to people who weren't like me. And I really think this brings such a one-dimensional view on your growing mind. When the apartheid was lifted and I knew things weren't right, I didn't know what they were because sanctions and what we're taught in school is very limited to what was going on. 
I vowed that I was going to pay attention to other people's cultures, that I was going to learn as much as I can. When I got to university, I started meeting people who have all different colors and different races and everything else. And they had stories that I couldn't even imagine. And they were just down the road from me. Mm. And I just, after that, I started just asking everybody their stories. That was my thing. What's your story? And I really grew as a person from that. You don't judge people when you hear their story. And then when I left South Africa, I didn't leave because I I wanted to run away. I left because I had an adventurous heart. And I moved to London to dance there. And I realized that there were other cultures out there that were just as interesting. When I started looking at all of this, I just realized that every culture has something to offer. Every culture has a beautiful side. You're right. You're right. There are just so many different Mm -hmm. cultural lessons to be learned. In my case, I've spent a lot of time in Chinese culture, particularly Taiwanese Mm -hmm. cultures. So interesting. It is. It's really fascinating. In fact, this morning I went to a temple with a Chinese friend. I've had a fairly Chinese morning this morning. Neil just sort of looked at me and went, yeah, I'll sleep in and have my cup of coffee. Thank (laughs) you very much. That's great. I want to hear more about your Mm -hmm. dancing career. Yeah, so um, I went to uh, university and studied dance and theatre. I just always wanted to be a dancer. I didn't have anything else I wanted to do at the time. I'd got my degree in dance and then I joined, I got into some dance companies and I danced professionally until I was 26. I had jumping companies, I went from ballet to contemporary to anything that would pay the bills and that kind of thing. And then uh, I moved to London. Mm-hmm. And I started auditioning there, dancing there. And then within about a year afterwards, I went to an audition and tore my hamstring. Oh, no. And <laughs> that must have been so hard. You've, it was, you've moved overseas uh, to follow your dream. Mm. And presumably you had very big dreams of being a dancer. Yeah. And, and I was, what, 27 at the time. And I just, I, I, think, it was, I think it was a good thing in looking back. I was in an audition, I heard my hamstring rip, I walked out, and I never walked back into a, 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 an audition again, but it, it set me on a different path, and I think sometimes I needed, I needed that to actually get me out of it, if you know what I mean. It got me into producing, I worked in a theatre company, and yeah, I just like to organise all that stuff with all the performers, <laughs> and I love the backstage side of it, and I, yeah. So, so you like I, the creative side? The creative side, you like the drama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then I started teaching and choreographing and just whenever we move, I usually teach somewhere or choreograph something or just create something. Yeah. (laughs) How did you get from being in London, being very involved in the creative scene, to being here in Canberra with Mm. two kids? (laughs) I went out one night in London to a club and met a guy uh, (laughs) in the line and he... uh, (laughs) He asked me if the club was worth the wait because it was a long line. And I said, absolutely. And uh, he went across the street, bought a bottle of champagne, hid some some champagne glasses in his jacket, and we sat on the side sidewalk and drank champagne until they let us into the club. He, so he was living in Germany at the time. I was living in London, and he kept on coming back every weekend after that. After that. After that. Must and have been good champagne. All the, all the- it was very good champagne. <laughs> can do anything with a good bottle of bubbles, I say. <laughs> and I'm sure the conversation was even better. Yeah, no, it was good. And I was with some girlfriends and he was with some guy friends. And, and then um, he deployed to Iraq for a year and I waited for him and he came back and 
That must have been hard. How long had you been dating at that Three stage? months. Three months, mm. and then he left. Um, but it's amazing what you can accomplish in a relationship when you just have conversation, when all you can do is talk. You can't have experiences together, and you just land up really getting to know somebody through their good and bad. And there were a lot of bad days as well in that. We saw both sides of each other that year, and he came back, and we got married, and I moved to Germany. Wow. And then we moved to North Carolina, and then... Kansas, Seattle. <laughs> in Germany, let's talk mm. about your experiences there because what I really liked, one of the stories in your book, was this story about your daughter going to buy bread. Yes, yes. That was a big eye-opener for me. In Germany, you always have to have the change purse or in Europe for the toilet because mm-hmm. you have to pay to go to the toilet there. I would always have this change purse. And I realized because of my South African upbringing and because I was only allowed to talk to people like me, that if I could give my kids one thing is just being able to talk to anybody without that intimidation factor, without that you're different, what, you know, that kind of feeling, I would really be setting them up well. When we were in Germany, I decided that I was going to put them in as, in as many uncomfortable situations with people as I possibly could. And I found German people absolutely amazing, but getting to know them is quite hard. They can be very abrupt. Now, they love children. They're beautiful to children. And I found it intimidating to go buy bread because I'd go to the bakery and I'd have to ask for the right amount and the right, the right bread and give the right money and all of that. So one day I gave the change purse to my six-year-old and I walked out of the shop and I said, that's the bread I want. That's how many I want. Figure it out. And, wow. I, and I gave her the change purse and I walked out and I walked out so that I wouldn't come and save her because that's something moms do. We save, we save the kids. You know, We see them having a rough time. And she, Wait, was she scared? No, nope, not at all. She was like, okay. She went through how she, she just figured it out. She came out with the right bread, the right change, everything. She worked it out. And after that, I vowed to always do that, to always put them in situations with money they don't understand. She was using Euro. She was, she was six. And after that, she bought the bread. And then I started expanding her discomfort. How can I make her feel as uncomfortable <laughs> as possible? Because then you're just building resilience. And they're fine. Children are much better at this than I am. Was she, I mean, I know she's not here to ask directly, but do you think she felt proud about being able to go and buy bread? Oh, I absolutely do. I absolutely do. Just just giving her that, that I can contribute. I think children want to do something. They don't always want to be given everything. I think they want... They want to feel big. They want to feel like, oh, I've got the, the money. I've got the change purse. We hold money as such a power over children a lot of the time. Well, I'll buy you this. You can have this. It's your birthday, you can have this. But what if you give them the money and you tell them to go and contribute to the family? I think it's very powerful. I think so. And I think there's power too in rather than just saying to your child, look, I'll do it for you. Oh, no, 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 no. You're doing it wrong. I'll do mm-hmm. it for you. To giving them that independence, I think, is or really letting them strong. fail. Oh, that's know? a big one. Let them let <laughs> let her fail, and then make her do it again. It was really a powerful moment. I do it a lot with my children. My my son's principal stands on the steps, and before COVID, he would shake the hands of all the kids coming in, and my son would run and hide away from him. And I said to him, you will shake his hand every day and greet him in the eye, or I'll come into the quad and pull you out, and I will walk with you every day until you do it. And he now, every day, walks up to his principal and shakes his hand. And the other day he said to me, you know, it doesn't bother me anymore. 
And I thought, if he cannot be scared of people, or principles always scary, mm. but if I can give my children that resilience and put them, make them do the things that feel uncomfortable, God, they'll be much better than I will be because <laughs> I lived a long time being uncomfortable around certain people. It's a confidence building thing, those small confidence building measures, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It, it does build up with a pattern of time. You, you, you face something that's a little bit difficult and then mm. you celebrate that success, I think, and then you move forward. And then they've done it. They don't have to be scared of it. Yeah, exactly. And that's done. Talking still about children and building confidence and other things, I want to ask about how you talk about money with your kids. And I know we had a little bit of a talk mm. before about what you do in a supermarket. Oh, yeah. When I was pregnant, and pregnant women are the worst to ask about things because we, we, we know everything. We'll never do this. We'll never do that. <laughs> but when I was pregnant, I used to really watch moms. And I remember being in a supermarket one day, and a, and a kid was having a tantrum, and the mother gave him a matchbox car. And I, I was standing behind her, and she said, oh, he won't leave the shop without one. Mm. And I was like, oh. And in that moment, I said, I'm never buying my kids anything when we leave a store ever. And I, I don't, they don't ask. They, they don't even, they don't even try at all. I really try and make sure that they don't get that much. The power of no is very good. It's very, <laughs> very good for everybody to learn the power of no. It's an interesting thing because the nag factor is so well known in marketing circles now. Mm. And I remember before kids watching this marketing program or this documentary about just how persuasive marketing had become and big advertisers had worked out that most adults now often had the ability rationally to work out what was an ad and what wasn't Mm. but children don't which is why everything from holidays to cars to houses are often now marketed to children not to Mm. the parents buy this and your children will like it it's actually marketed Mm. to children and they actually had this footage of this mum who every time she was driving and her child saw a McDonald's sign, they would start nagging, like throwing a tantrum, having a full-on meltdown. Mm. Every time she drove past McDonald's, she had to go through the drive-through and buy something for her child and feed her child French fries as her child was in the back seat. Well, she didn't have to. Well, no, that's true. And it's really easy to judge because there's a lot of things here I know I do with my children that we succumb to the nag factor. But I had that same moment. I was like, I am never going to be the parent Mm. who will just be that beholden to my kids. That said, we have been known to have drive through at McDonald's and sharing chippies in the back seat. You know, I think I think an eighty twenty is fine. <laughs> Sometimes you don't have to do hundred percent all the time. You really don't. That's just exhausting. Sometimes exactly. you just need to press the easy button, whatever <laughs> that is. Yeah, and I'm I'm glad you said that because <laughs> I I know you are about to uplift your life. Yes, uh, once again. Yes, and so this will be your ninth. Move as a family. My ninth, ninth move. Yeah, I've stopped counting. How bad's that? Mm, I did a rough count through reading your book, <laughs> and I think you're at number nine. I could be. I could be. <laughs> Have you got any tips for how you're going to make that easier? Have you got to that point where you just sort of feel like you're so much in the routine now that it's just easy and down pat? And I think it's with anything. I don't 
put issues on the, on it with the kids. With the family, I'm like, yeah, we're up and moving. And if you don't give them issues to think about, usually kids don't come up with their own. You know, often they overhear us. I always say I'm the worst. I'm the worst with the move. The kids are so resilient and they so they can adapt so well. I always say it's it's me that's the one who <laughs> struggles the most with the adapting. I'm the one who gets attached the most. When the rest of the family, the kids, kids are very, they're very uh, adaptable. They can just move forward and, and, and all of that. So I just keep them up to date with everything. Like, hey, there's a change. This is what's going to happen. Walk them through the steps. I have to do that a lot because, unfortunately, kids don't take it all in at once. My kids are 11, 13 right now. My 11-year-old, I have to continually go over the plan. We're going to be doing this. We're going to stay here. This is going to happen. We might have to go into quarantine. I'm already prepping them for that. So just giving them that, this is what's going to happen. We're going to have to prep for quarantine. You're going to be in a room for 14 days. You're going to do this, and we're not Mm. going to have any issues with that. Okay? Okay. We're just going to deal with it. But yeah, in terms of the moves, we enjoy it. We've become a bit of a gypsy family. The kids love it. And what about their stuff? Do kids get your kids get really attached to their toys or their stuff? Do they find it difficult to have to pack up and say goodbye to their stuff? No. Up until now, the stuff's always come with us. And before we moved to Australia, I gave them, they could bring three things. And my son brought bottles for flipping, a ball and a frisbee. We didn't count his cuddly toys in for that because that was his favorite thing. But my daughter just bought like a doll, little doll's house at the time and just small things. And when we got here, we got them Legos. And that's all we've got them since we've been here. And for me, that was an eye-opener because I'm definitely the parent who has a whole room full of toys. Mm. And that's what I thought we had to do. They needed stuff. They needed things to do. But I think I'm rethinking that now, you know, seeing how little they've actually asked for and wanted. They forgot everything that we left behind. It was fascinating when we left posting in Taiwan because mm. I remember the day that the packers came and they're super efficient in Taiwan. I think we had like six of them and they'd actually packed everything up by midday and the rest of the time was actually just getting it down in the lift because in being in high rise, that actually takes quite a lot of time <laughs> to wait for the lift and get everything down. Oh, gosh. And I remember coming back and everything was just so empty and you could actually hear things echo because there was so little stuff. And we'd only been there three and a half years. I was like, well, where's all this stuff come from? And I discovered some balloons, some promotional balloons someone had given me. And we blew up these balloons and my kids chased them around. And it was the fu- they had so much fun. I would never have believed that a packet of balloons that were previously no value would have given them so much joy. And we had about a month without any real toys, just a few little things. A few things crept in that last month, but they were fine. And then when we came back to Australia, all our stuff arrived a couple of weeks later. And there was a lot of stuff. I was shocked by how many boxes of toys there were. I had a rule that we could only open one box of toys a day because I just didn't want stuff everywhere. And that was about all I could cope with in terms of unpacking as well. And that was part of their ritual. They really looked forward to that, that they could open up one box a day. And then the fascinating thing for me as a parent was watching what they would actually play with and what they didn't. And most of the stuff they didn't actually touch. And that was great because it was still in the box. So then (laughs) at the end of the day, if they hadn't played with it, I would just sort of go, right, so is there anything else here you want in the box? And they'd go, 
nah, we're all good. And I could then just get oh, rid of the box. That's a good idea. That's mm. a very good idea. But you don't have so much stuff to start with, so it's much easier for you. Well, we have stuff waiting for us because all our storage stuff is now going to meet us in Hawaii. Oh. So so we'll, we'll meet it on the other side. But moving here, you know, we just, we were like, you know, we don't need anything. <laughs> and we haven't. We haven't needed any of it. It's crazy. <laughs> and I love your tip in the book about thinking about your future self mm. and in a family context about constantly being a little bit ahead of the game, thinking about lunches tomorrow or schedule tomorrow so you're always a little bit prepared. Yeah, and that was given to me by a mom in Virginia. She was a doctor and she had some really outstanding kids and I said, how did you get those? What's your recipe? And she said, she thought about it for a while and she said, I always taught them to think about their future selves. And when she explained that to me, I have never stopped doing it since that day. And it just makes them less anxious. That feeling in the morning when you can't find your socks Mm. and it's five minutes before you have to walk out the door and everyone starts panicking. In my house, that happens a lot. It happens here too. And just taking that away that you do that the day before. When you have the time to figure it out, and then the morning times are easy because everything's ready. Mornings aren't anxious anymore. They're not like, where's my this? Where's my that? Where's my homework? At night, they will sit and go, what do I have to put out for tomorrow? I have to think about myself for the morning, my future self. And just that alone has changed my whole mornings from that panic because I'm not that organized. I'm not the most organized person. But that alone has helped me. It's helped my children. And then going, you have a test next week. How are you helping yourself now to help your future self next week to do well? Mm. And then you can expand it to, well, next year you have to enter the sports competition. How are you helping your future self today for next year? And you can you can expand it as you need. It's not living so much in the moment, but it's getting the kids thinking about consistency, about planning, about making their life easier. Yeah, Yeah. it makes sense. And I have a seven-year-old who, shall we say, is not someone who ever thinks about his future self. His My Neil is shaking his head. He's very much an (laughs) in-the-moment child. It's a real... Which is lovely. Well, he's very warm-hearted and he's very big in terms of his heart and letting everyone know he's there. And of a night, he does not want to go to bed and he stays up late, chit-chat, chit-chat, chit-chattering to his brother. And I think this is going to be a conversation we're going to be having a lot about thinking about your future self because in the morning, he really always struggles. And also in that morning, be like, if you had gone to bed earlier, you wouldn't feel like this now. And then, Mm. But it's repetition. It's keeping saying it. It's not a one-and-done conversation. It's definitely consistency reminding a lot consistency (laughs) I know I know like I said 80 20 (laughs) exactly it is so hard and then of course I have to ask because I've watched your YouTube clip on this topic (laughs) how do you not raise an asshole (laughs) well it goes with the story in the book because again most of what was written in the book is not me being an expert it's by learning from other incredible moms around the world. And in that story, I have a friend. She's a great mom. She has great kids. And she, I saw her at school drop off and she looked mad as all hell. And I was like, what's wrong? And she said, I just called my kids assholes. And I was shocked. And I was like, what? And she said, she, (laughs) 
She said that they were acting up and she started calling them assholes and, and all of this stuff. I asked her what, what happened and, and she told me they had been doing something naughty and nothing huge. But I, in the moment, I just stopped and thought, oh my God, she took that moment not to think of herself, her, her kids as perfect. Because we all like to think of our kids, you know, not all, but a lot of the time we think of our kids as perfect and we have the rose tinted glasses on. Haha, ha, the Instagram effect when exactly. you only share the photos of them when they're being delightful and exactly. they're well behaved. And, 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 you know, just to look at her kids actually as they were and to stop them being assholes because the whole thing is an asshole only happens once you've let them be an asshole a couple of times. <laughs> and she just nipped it in the bud and she said that it was the best thing she ever did. And in that moment, I was like, I too will call my kids assholes one day because it really <laughs> is quite effective. <laughs> it is a hard thing. Like, I mean, I love my kids very much and it's a, it was, it's a blessing because for a long time I didn't think I could have children at all. And especially mm -hmm. during this time where we've been in the stay-at-home mode, it's been really lovely actually to spend time with them. Not to say it's been easy because it hasn't been mm -hmm. easy. But, yes, my kids sometimes can, can press my buttons. <laughs> and we were talking about this before, but when I first met my lovely husband, Neil, and we were just friends for a long time, and I had my kids with me and the kids were hungry, so we found a fast food restaurant. And my little one, who was then only four, he ordered nuggets and chips and something else. They gave him a different order. I think they gave him a hamburger or something. He loves his food. He's, he's a very good eater. He always has been. And so he polished everything off. He demolished it. He went, hmm, this is good. Mm, it's probably better than that. Mm, that's great. And then he suddenly decided that he'd like nuggets as well. So he started on the, this isn't fair. I didn't get my nuggets. And I was like, yeah, but you've, you've eaten everything. I can't go back and complain now. And long story short, he ended up throwing himself on a very dirty tiled floor in a fast food restaurant, <laughs> throwing a most spectacular tantrum. It was the tantrum to beat all tantrums. And I'm there with Neil thinking, oh, this is so embarrassing. It's so embarrassing. <laughs> We've all been there. <laughs> We've all been there, all I know. There. But sometimes it feels like you're just doing it solo. <laughs> been there and and that's why I say never judge a mother in the moment ever you do not know what's come before and what's coming after and what's just happened because we've all been there and you, you know? have some really lovely stories from compassion about special needs children mm. and how difficult this can be as well yeah that, that is a big topic for me because I found myself in this gorgeous dance world with children with special needs and as I love them and they are just the beautiful humans who have so much to teach us. But it was the parents that I really used to, I don't know, not, not feel for, but want to care for. Because you'd walk up to their child who is dynamically beautiful and you'd talk to her and, and, and the, the mother would just be the mom next to the child. But she was the one caring 24-7, working mm. hard, tired. I once had a mom... And it was a big moment for me. She she brought her kid to ballet and this child had Down syndrome and she was she was crying because she didn't think that she would ever be able to have her daughter dance when she found mm. out. And just that moment of how much how much support able bodied moms can give to parents like this just became a real a real big thing for me. If if a child is having a meltdown it might be because they might be on a spectrum. They might have something you don't know about. 
Or they you might know, just be going through a really bad time. Just talking about your children. They might be going through a divorce. They might be on a spectrum. They might, you do not know. You have no right to judge another mom. Because yeah. one of my special needs moms, she said she'd been really, had a rough time with, with other mothers judging her and and that because her child didn't look like he had anything, well, in quotes, wrong with him. And she used to say, in, in the book I put it, it was a beautiful quote. She said, unless a mother is standing in the corner smoking crack, I'm going to believe she's doing her best. Mm. And that for me is a big deal. Parents supporting each other is such a big thing. It you is. You don't know. You don't know. And my eldest son, actually, he has a mild disability. He has cerebral palsy. And outwardly, he looks perfectly fine. Mm. But it's funny ways that it affects him. It's self-confidence. It's difficulty mm. writing in class. It's a whole range of things. Mm. It's easy just to say, oh, why can't he just write neatly? But it's actually, it's actually really difficult for him to do that. Yeah. And so when you have compassion and understanding, you can talk to the teachers and say, it's not that he's not trying, it's just really difficult. Absolutely. And I have one final question for you. Yeah. Do you have a frugalister tip? <laughs> yes, so I, have, I have one. So I make my children pay 20 cents every time they leave lights on. Wow. Also trying to, you know, not only just electricity, but also to make them cut back the world's usage and that when you walk out of room and you don't switch the light off you owe me 20 cents per light and it was funny because when my mom comes she gives them a bag of 20 cents pieces for the electricity <laughs> bill but we haven't taken any electricity money from them for probably a year now because they just switch the lights off so it's just building that habit of I'd mm. walk into a room I'd be like you owe me 60 cents there were three lights on and they'd have to pay me <laughs> Yeah, that, that's probably the best best one. That's a silly one, but... No, no, it's actually really important. It's not silly at all. Well, firstly, it's a good income revenue raising for you and you're saving a lot of money on your electricity bill. But the climate change issue is so yeah. real for this younger generation and it's something they care very passionately about. But what I often find through my own kids is they don't actually understand how all the little things they mm. do add up. And that was the point of it. Everything you do can make a, an impact. And as silly as that one is in the big picture, hopefully they'll just use less as they grow up. Everybody has their, their role. Lovely. Thank you so much, Joanne. Oh, I know how busy you. it is for you as you're preparing to leave, and I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate this. <laughs> and I'm loving your book too. I'm literally eating it up right now. I am so glad. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> eating it up. And there's so many things I know of commonalities that we're oh, going to be – we were talking offline and we'll continue to talk so offline about. So many, so many. My favourite part is your challenges at the end of each chapter. <laughs> I love those. I'm going to go through those. Well, thank you so much. And to continue the discussion about raising children and values mm. and how not to raise an asshole, if I can call <laughs> it that, uh, please join us on the Joyful Frugalista Facebook group. Thank you. You've been listening to The Joyful Frugalista with Serena Bird. She actually likes everybody. And of course, sound has been by Neil Hadley. And myself, I'm Joseph McGrail Baitup. you got an accentuate the positive Eliminate the negative latch on To the affirmative Don't mess with Mr. In-Between